my sermon title this morning is Choosing Faith Over Fear, Choosing Faith Over Fear. And I'm going to attempt to do something ambitious this morning. I I'm, I'm, suppose that kind of happens when Jeff is away, the, the staff can go a little crazy. But um, nonetheless, I'm going to try to summarize an Old Testament story from you from the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. Uh, and uh, I promise we'll finish on time. So uh, we're going to go quick through the book of Ruth. And I, I want you to take away some specific lessons uh, that we can learn from each of the story's main characters. Uh, there are really <clears throat> important main characters, and we'll touch on these as we go, but uh, um, the main characters are, are these. Uh, first, it's God. God. And then a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, a daughter-in-law named Ruth, and then a man named Boaz. And then beyond these practical lessons... Uh, that I'll be unveiling as we go, I also want you to hear and understand an important definition, a definition. And uh, I'll repeat this definition a little bit later in the message, but uh, here it is. It's, it's a good working definition of providence. providence. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward his worthy purposes. Let me read that again. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward his worthy purposes. All right, with that as introduction, let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, I pray that our message time this morning would be fruitful as we open your perfect word. I pray that this would be your message to those assembled here, and by the power of your spirit, hearts would be open to receiving Holy Scripture. Lord, this message is lifted up to you as an act of love, obedience, and worship, and I pray that I would neither add to nor take anything away from your perfect truth for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, so the book of Ruth is about God. It's about God eternally existing in the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I, as, as we talk about God, I want to open with with just a couple of questions for you. I want to probe your heart a little bit to tune you up for this message. And so first, do you believe that God, eternally existing in the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit, is good? Next, do you believe that God is sovereign? Sovereign. By that I mean, do you really believe he's not only real, but that he is completely and totally in control of everything? How about this one? As one in control of everything, do you believe God is working all the time, 24-7, as it were, providentially, never resting, never changing for his good purposes? In other words, do you believe that God is good and that he works all the time for good because he is good? All right, here's one more question, and this one gets a little more personal. Do you believe that in keeping with God's many promises found in Scripture, His holy word, that He is interested in the detail of your individual circumstances? That He's interested in your life, the details of your life, and that He is at work for good for you? Do you believe He is truly aware of and accounting for every thought, every word, every deed that we think, say, and do? 
Well, the Bible asserts all of these things about God to be unequivocally true. A deep study of his attributes affirms his omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence. He, as spirit, is everywhere. His omnipotence. He is the essence of power and nothing is beyond his abilities. His immutability. He never changes. His goodness. Jesus said only God is good. And then his love for us. He made us in his image. We're unique that way. God made us in his image. And he is the essence of love. And he gave his only son for us. As it is written in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it would seem that if we are first and indeed saved. And by virtue of our conversion we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we're open to understanding and knowing God as he is, knowing God more deeply as we're sanctified daily, that we would not ever find ourselves anxious or worried. Ever. We would choose faith over any temptation to fear always. Well, let's be honest. If you're like me, you get anxious and you get worried. Raise your hand if you've never felt anxious or worried as a Christian. I don't see any hands. Why the disconnect? Well, if you're like me, you can head answer yes to all these important doctrinal questions. You know, you've been taught sound doctrine. You can generally pass a Bible test, and you know how to answer rightly in public, at least in church public, right? But what about that secret you, the, the one that God sees and knows? What about what is in your heart Your heart, that seat of self that just you and God alone can access. Well, that's where the battle is. It's in the heart. I guess, um, if you're honest, you probably struggle with fear and even some doubt from time to time, and you have moments where your faith wobbles. Why? When God orchestrates circumstances that test the strength of our faith, and he says he does this for a purpose, to grow us, You may be tempted to make God smaller or less capable than he really is. He may seem really small in light of a really big circumstance that's come into your life. Or you may be tempted to doubt God's goodness in light of how bad and tragic your big circumstance seems at the moment. Or maybe you wonder about God's goodness in response to just a general decline all around us. Boy, a week's worth of news. It's, it's very tempting to be fearful. We have Iran, we have North Korea, we have terrorism, we have an antichrist culture that, as a good fighter pilot term would say, is headed straight downhill supersonic. So we can respond with discouragement and, and uh, maybe even hopelessness. And then's your, then there's your own sin battle. Jeff has been hitting on this in the holiness series. You may be in that personal sin situation where you're Praying for victory, and yet you fail again, or maybe you're wondering why your family is drifting, your son or daughter may be drifting away from you or from God's truth, and then you're tempted to believe that God isn't really there, or worse, that he doesn't really care, or maybe, again, he isn't good, or that he at least isn't interested in being good to you personally. I know this hit my heart as I was doing preparing the sermon. So I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you all. But if any of these points are hitting your heart, you can exhale a little bit because you're in good company. 
In fact, the temptations I've mentioned are found evident in virtually every faith hero of the Bible. Many wrestled mightily with fear and doubt in their own walk with God. But always, always, if they made the list of heroes in Hebrews, they ultimately chose faith over fear. Struggle is the reality of our human condition, and we live out our lives in this sin-fallen world. That's just the way it is. There will be struggle. There will be temptation. There will be pressure. There will be opportunities to choose fear over faith. And they come to us because we have a sin nature. We live in a fallen world. We live in a culture that's anti-Christ, and because we have an enemy that's after us. Jeff has been preaching on this. The Christian life is war. It's war. Well, this morning, I do want to encourage you. This is a sermon about encouragement. And I want you to see that you can grow in your knowledge of God, and that you can more and more choose faith over fear the more you learn about God, the more you imbibe about Him, the more you fill your heart with the truth of the Scripture about Him. So let's talk about Ruth. Ruth is an intimate little story about God mainly and then about seemingly unimportant people at apparently insignificant times. Elimelech, Naomi, Ruth, and a man named Boaz. The book itself is a short little four-chapter book. It's narrative. It's wedged in between Judges and 1 Samuel. And it occurs in Israel's history during the time of the Judges. The time of the Judges. And that was a time when Spirit-filled appointees of God were leading sinful Israel. And the best way to probably set the stage for what I want to bring out about these characters is to give you some scripture right from the beginning of the book and then right at the end of the book. We're going to kind of bookend it. So I'll read from Ruth 4, verses 13 to 17. Uh, This sort of launches the story, and then then I'll read from... Uh, sorry, Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5, and then I'll read from Ruth 4, verses 13 to 17. That's the end. And this is the end of the story that summarizes what God in his goodness and providence accomplishes through the main characters in the story. So let's go to Ruth 1. Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5, if you'd like to open your Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So that the husband was left, so that the woman was left without her two sons and husband. All right, let's flip over to Ruth 4, 13 to 17, and let me read the end of the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of the life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. 
They named him Obed. His father, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's King David. So we have a bad beginning and a happy ending. These are the bookends of the story. So let's look now what happens in between. And then more importantly, we want to tease out the choices the characters made all along. So uh, the time of the judges, as I mentioned, was a, a time uh, where spirit-filled appointees uh, by Yahweh uh, were leading central Israel. And uh, in this time, there was an identifiable cycle of sin and rescue for Israel. Um, they were in the promised land, and uh, they were uh, trying to live out uh, their relationship with Yahweh, and it, it wasn't a good time. But you have to remember the main message of Exodus, the story of how God brought Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt, and brought them into the promised land, was that he chose Israel. Yahweh chose Israel, not because they deserved to be chosen, but because he wanted to set his love on them and to save mankind through them. He wanted them to live in right relationship with him in order to bless all of humanity. Exodus 19.6 recorded God speaking, And you, Israel, shall be a king to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, a priest was one who was represented others before God. A kingdom of priests was expected to do so for all mankind. A priest also represented God to men, and so a kingdom of priests was to represent God to all the nations. Their obedience was to be a testimony to all. And Yahweh's method to achieve this kingdom of priests was to set apart Israel, to give them the land and to give them the law, which was the, which was the conditional Mosaic covenant. His relationship through them was to be through the law. But what happened? Israel failed continually on their end. They failed continually to meet the, their conditions of the Mosaic covenant. Time and time again, they chose idols over Yahweh and they made decisions in fear and not faith. So in the time of the judges in particular, Israel would sin and Yahweh would respond with some form of punishment, a graduated punishment, mind you, often putting them under servitude of foreigners. And Israel would suffer under the pressure. They would cry out in anguish supplication and Yahweh would rescue them. He would answer in his sovereign mercy with the deliverance of a new judge raised up. So we have the picture of a cycle, a downward cycle. Well, they'd have temporary security as a result of obedience, but sadly, a more egregious return to sin would come. At this point, it's also really important to understand that Israel was clearly warned by Yahweh regarding expected responses to breaking of the Mosaic Covenant. They were without excuse. Both Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 gave Israel very clear promises of blessing for obedience and very clear warnings of curses for disobedience. So in Judges, we see this cycle happening. It's a cycle of sin, curse, supplication, salvation, security, and then sin again. And each time it proved more corrupted than, than the previous one. Uh, Yahweh's punishment became more severe each time, and then they got uh, what I would say a lesser judge. So this was a spiritual low point. In fact, Judges 17.6 captures a sense of drift and disintegration with, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Listen, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, as we look at Ruth 1, Yahweh had delivered on a promised curse. 
This was for their corporate disobedience, and this particular curse was a famine. A famine in the land impacting all of Judah, and more important to the story, the town of Bethlehem. And the famine meant that all the people were impacted. This was uh, all of Israel, all of Judah, the so-called regular citizens, average Joes, John Q. Public, as it were. And so a family man by the name of Elimelech, he's hit hard by this famine. And so he decides to take his wife, Naomi, and their two sons to Moab. To Moab. Maybe it's like when many Alaskans left the state of Alaska, you know, to relocate when we had low oil prices and jobs were scarce and the economy was under pressure. But there's more to know about Moab. This was not uh, Texas or North Dakota. Moab was actually not a very friendly place, especially for a family relocating from Israel. Uh, Moab was a perennial enemy of Israel, and it was uh, located on the east side of the Dead Sea. The country itself originated when Lot fathered Moab by an incestuous union with his oldest daughter, and you can go to Genesis 19.37 to look at that. Centuries later, the Jews had opposition from Balak, the king of Moab, through the prophet Balaam, that's uh, Numbers 22 to 25. So this time during the time of the judges, relations between Israel and Moab were simply not good. So maybe a better comparison is uh, Elimelech is wanting to move to North Korea, not North Dakota. Think about that. Well, Elimelech believes he's between a rock and a hard place, circumstantially. And at this juncture of the story, when you read it at face value, we're a little tempted to side with Elimelech, right? Who, who's to, who can blame a guy for wanting to pack up his family in a famine and move to where things might be better? He's just looking out for his family, right? Well, I think a better way to look at Elimelech within the historical facts of the time is that he was running from God in hopes of finding a better deal. It's not as though he was running to a better situation that God had meant for him. There was no job offer in Moab. And I doubt he received counsel from his fellow Israelites that Moab was a good idea in any way. You know, but it seems that uh, Limelech was convinced that Moab had to be better than what he had in Bethlehem. What? Under God's provision and care. He made a terrible choice, as the passage narrates, and the blame was squarely on him. In fact, he made an arrogant and disobedience choice, I would argue, and his choice was a manifestation of fear and probably anger. Think about this. He could have stayed and chosen faith in the God of Israel, who, though chastising his people and keeping with his warnings, was still fully and lovingly invested in Israel. God loved Israel. And so Elimelech was loved too. And the scripture speaks throughout about God's love. Let me read from Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9. It says this about God's heart and desires for Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than the Lord, that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his, your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's God's heart. That was God's heart for Israel. And Elimelech knew that. Now, as a dad, I I love my children. This means I would die for them. It also means I was willing to discipline them when they needed it. And I did bring chastisement out of love as they were growing up in agreement with Cynthia most of the time. But, you know, it was for their best interest ultimately. And thankfully, they all responded to discipline and didn't reject me outright. They did not read the pain of punishment as a reason to leave or question my love for them. No one ran away to another family, at least as far as I know. And if they did, they came back very quickly. So, um, But I would argue this is what Elimelech did. He, he chose other gods, and he chose fear over faith. So what happened when he did this? The path of self-reliance, not of the path of submission. Well, when people move, life happens. In Elimelech's case, he died. And then his sons marry Moabite women, one of whom is Ruth. Then the wheels fall off even more. Tragedy and death. For reasons not included by the Holy Spirit, Elimelech and both sons die in Moab. And this is really the last we hear of them. Here's a practical lesson we can learn from Elimelech. We should learn from him. When life squeezes, run to something, not away from something. Find the wisdom and courage to decide rightly in tough circumstances. And you do this through trusting God in faith. Sometimes it's right to go. But I would argue God has a place for you there. Sometimes it's not right to go. Sometimes it's just important to stay put. So the men leave three widows behind. Naomi, the wife and mom, and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And think about this. Ponder the tragedy. Try to place yourself there. How would you feel? What would you do? Well, Naomi's life has gone from bad to worse. And the two daughters-in-law are found at the edge of survival as well. We've all probably been in, in that place where we feel like the walls are closing in. And we don't have great options. It's sort of the, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, secular version, I guess, of that situation. Well, let's, let's review our definition of providence. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, towards his worthy purposes. God's good will always and ultimately prevails, folks. No one can frustrate God's purposes and plans. No one. People cannot, nor can the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness or the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians 6.12, is a narration of the war raging. God has and will keep his covenant promises. God is a covenant keeper. Nothing can derail his salvation plan for mankind. Nothing can stop the coming of Jesus Christ. So maybe I'll say it this way. God is God and no other being is or ever can be. Providence then is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, eternal, Loving God, sovereignly controlling his creation for his perfect purposes, for his glory. And our good is squarely in the middle of that. 
All right, let's pick up back with the storyline. What do Naomi and the daughters-in-law do, and what does God accomplish providentially through his sovereign control of the circumstances? They're making choices in his sovereignly controlled unfolding of history. Well, let's start with Naomi. She's undone. She's embittered. If you read the text carefully, she is portrayed to be a picture of defeat and depression, and she believes that things are not well between her and God. And she's suffering consequences from her own wrong choices, either hers or, or and then her husband's. But nonetheless, she does learn that God has indeed provided food back in Bethlehem. And so she decides to go home to Bethlehem. She decides to leave Moab and go home. This is important. This is important. Ruth 1.6 proves God's faithfulness in disciplining Israel And it also underscores Elimelech's unbelief. Here it is, Ruth 1.6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God, of course, in his own timing, brought blessing and health back to Judah. And now Naomi wants to go home. God, like a loving parent, had ended the period of punishment for Israel. I guess you could say the teenager, corporate, corporate Israel, was no longer grounded. And there was life back in Bethlehem. So Naomi is unsure of what she's going to find when she goes back, but she's ready to go. She's still spiraling. She goes so far as to urge her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to leave her, to go back to their Moabite people, to let her, Naomi, go home to Bethlehem alone, well, Orpah decides to leave. She cuts her losses and stays in Moab and fully returns to Moabite culture and ways, and the scriptures don't give us much more about her. Orpah becomes a footnote of history, somewhat like Elimelech, who didn't really trust God enough to stay in Bethlehem and chose what he perceived as the better future, the better deal. And Orpah and Elimelech, I think, represent the picture of the wide gate, just the opposite of the narrow gate described in Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Let me read that. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. All right, well, then we have Ruth, Ruth, precious, faithful Ruth. Now, she's the example we're supposed to learn from and follow. Ruth, as the scripture says, clung to Naomi. She clung to Naomi. Look at Ruth 1, 14 to 18 now. And I'll read it. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will be, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that (coughs) she was Determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi's silence is important here. She's just saying, whatever, you can stay. Well, think about Ruth. This is extraordinary and pivotal. Ruth's response 
is unconditional. It's all in. It's an I love you, God, and trust you heart response that God wants and rewards in believers. It's a heart response. It's a love response. It's a response to God's love first. This is rightly judging God to be a big and good and loving God in the manner that is a choice of faith over fear. Ruth here is responding to God's love. Deuteronomy 6.5 and Matthew 22.37 express how we are to return God's love for us. Old Testament clarity is matched with New Testament affirmation. Look at this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, says Deuteronomy 6.5. And he, this is Jesus speaking, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, as it says in Matthew 22.37. This is the same aha, epiphany, awakening feel we see Peter express in John 6 when Jesus had finished speaking to many about him being the bread of life. And then how in John 6, 66, we see that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, these were people that were following Jesus. It's not the 12, but there were people who were on the bandwagon and rolling forward. Why did they turn back? Why did they bail? Well, Jesus had gone too radical for them, and they were unsettled, if not afraid. Randy at last week's Worship in the Round, talked about this. He preached on Peter's response to Jesus' next question in this passage, which was, do you want to go away as well? This is Jesus asking them, asking the 12. And what did Peter say? In verses 68 and 69, Peter humbly replied, or to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Good Peter, all in, faith over fear, at least at this critical moment. We know Peter had his ups and downs going forward, but he's responding rightly. So Ruth becomes a loyal convert to the faith that she didn't grow up in, and we see her introduced to God's grace and providential care. She goes with Naomi back to Judah, back to Bethlehem in particular. So what does God do with the women next? Well, One is strong in faith, one is wobbling in faith. I want to spend a little more time on the one wobbling in faith, that's that's Naomi. She seems to be the picture of someone returning to God after a woodshed experience. Returning to God is something we see throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Returning to God. It's appealed for over and over again. Let me just rapid fire read five quick Old Testament verses that show you this. Joel 2.13, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and astounding, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Hosea 14.1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Zechariah 1.3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts, Nehemiah 1.9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through your, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there, Job 22.23. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up if you remove justice far from your tents. You get the picture. God in his grace will take you back. He'll take you back. Well, Naomi and Ruth do go back. They go to Bethlehem. And Naomi is returning with a broken and contrite heart. And Ruth is running to God 
Full speed, full sprint. She wants to know God more intimately. Well, the practical lesson from Naomi is this. Faith is the antidote to discouragement and bitterness. If you're in a return mode, if you've been away, repent, come home. Faith is the antidote to discouragement and bitterness. And we'll see how this plays out as we keep going. And now back in Bethlehem, the women are faced with the challenge of living alone. Two single women without husbands to help protect and provide, as was expected in the culture of the day. But God has them in his caring hands. God's interested in their immediate circumstances. But get this, he's also interested in using them in his gracious plan for the salvation of all humanity. Two seemingly insignificant people in what would appear to be an insignificant time. God in his perfect design and timing, guess what? Judah, Bethlehem, home is a place where a man named Boaz lives. And Boaz is positioned to be the circumstantial savior for these two struggling women. But Boaz is also, in God's design, uniquely positioned to serve as something called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. And this is uh, something that makes possible a string of decisions and choices that bring about the birth of King David in accordance with God's promises. I want to look at David's bloodline real quick with you. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 49, 8 to 12. Let me read this. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lion, as he dares, who dares to rouse him? This is the important verse. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. These verses come from the second chapter, second to the last chapter of Genesis, when the patriarch Joseph's, his life's coming to an end, and he calls his sons together to bless them and to prophesy. He's going to tell them what's going to happen in the future. He's giving them a, a picture. He's telling them what will happen to you in the days to come, as it says in verse 49.1. Well, the timing of all this is well before the Exodus. These things were said long before Moses, long before the plagues, the dramatic move out of Egypt, long before Sinai, long before the wilderness, some 650 years before the kingship of David and Solomon, when through the bloodline of Judah, there came a dynasty of kings. These verses promise kingship to Judah, but more importantly, they promise what? They promise King Jesus. They promise King Jesus the ultimate righteous savior and ruler who will come through the same human bloodline. Look at verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Folks, God had Boaz in mind when he gave Jacob these words and when Moses was inspired to write them down by the Holy Spirit. But here's what you and I need to hear today. God had you and God had me in mind right then and there as well. And you'll see that he had Naomi and Ruth in mind here in a second when he made these promises as captured in his holy word in Genesis. 
Our God of the Bible is controlling his creation. He's driving history, not reacting to anyone or anything. And we should be awed and we should be comforted by this. All right, let's look at Boaz. Boaz. Boaz was a wealthy kinsman of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, and he was also a very faithful man. In fact, John Piper described Boaz as a God-saturated man, a God-saturated man. Boaz was directly related to Elimelech, and by virtue of the Jewish law systems, he was positioned morally and legally to serve as kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. He was a male relative, And according to the laws found in the Pentateuch, he had the privilege or responsibility to act for them, act for a relative in trouble, danger, or in need of vindication. So Boaz was also wealthy, which gave him the opportunity to supply for their needs. And now now for Naomi, and then through through the relationship to Naomi of the daughter-in-law to Ruth. So right now we have a God-saturated, wealthy male relative who is honorable and rightly embraces his family responsibilities under the law, and even to Ruth. So as we say kind of glibly today, imagine that, folks. What are the odds? Imagine that. I have to ask you, is the God of Scripture good in rescuing God? I say he is. I say he is. Well, here's a little bit more in the role of kinsman and redeemer. This idea was primarily explained in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 26, if you'd like to research that afterwards. And it tells us that in the case of an Israelite man's death in which he fails to leave behind a son, the closest male relative of the deceased man is commanded to take his widow as wife and both redeem or take ownership of the deceased man's land and provide a son to carry on the deceased father's name. So the table is set, so to say, not just for Naomi and Ruth to be financially supported, to be circumstantially saved by their kinsman, Boaz, but there's also a possibility that Ruth could become Boaz's wife. At least there's wind in the sails in that direction here in the story. Well, so Ruth goes out to look for provision for her and Naomi, and she goes out to glean to glean, and gleaning was an Old Testament provision for the wealthy farmers to bless the poor in need. And poor people could go in behind the harvesters of a ripe field and pick up what the harvesters may have dropped, or they could cut what maybe the harvesters didn't cut. Whatever fell off the wagon, so to speak, the gleaners were able to pick up. And well, guess whose field Ruth happened to choose to glean? Unbeknownst to her, it's Boaz's field. And in the text, which I encourage you to read in close detail, we see Boaz take notice of Ruth. She's behaving as a godly woman, a virtuous woman. And we see Boaz interacting as a God-saturated man with all the people around him. And he employed many. And then what we see in the text is a truly beautiful progression of choices, conversations, events. They're all perfectly timed. And Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi all make the connections under the Mosaic law. These are revealed and understood. Boaz seeks to fulfill his responsibilities and romance is gently and honorably kindled towards Ruth. It's all very precious. It's all above board. It's God working through people who love him and are choosing faith over fear. 
Well, their choices lead to redemption. And as I read to you from Ruth 4, 13 to 17, Boaz and Ruth fall in love, they marry, and they have a son. Well, who gave the conception and the gift of a son? God did. Who did the women surrounding Naomi in that verse give credit to for her redemption? They give credit to God. Who providentially used these very ordinary people so long ago to advance our personal salvation? By faith, by grace, in Christ, David's heir. God did that. And he planned it all the way from the beginning. It's the God of the Bible. Folks, this, this book, this, this Bible can tell you what you need to know about God so that you can have that kind of faith. You can have faith over fear when life is squeezing you. Two practical lessons here from Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, it's commit early and all the way. Commit early and all the way. And from Boaz, it is possible to be a godly man in an ungodly culture, and God will use you if you are. This was the time of the judges. So if we think we can't be Christians and be bold in today's culture, Boaz did it in judges, and God used him mightily. Think about that. Well, so all's well and good. As Ruth closes, it's a happy ending. Despite tragic circumstances and outcomes for some along the way, But what was really accomplished? Well, God's salvation plan for all of mankind was continued uninterrupted. God had always promised it from the very beginning. Garden of Eden, it's captured in Genesis 3. So you see God moving inexorably towards our salvation in all circumstances which he is sovereign over. So there are more unconditional covenant promises to come. They come to Noah to Abraham, to David in his day. And God always and unfailingly proves to be a covenant-keeping God. But here it's the son of Boaz and Ruth, the male heir produced through the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. It was David's grandfather, David's heir, of course, as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, there are several other theological realities I want to clip through. I give credit to John MacArthur here. First, Ruth the Moabitess illustrated that God's redemptive plan extended beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. Second, Ruth demonstrated that women are co-heirs with men of God's salvation grace. That's in Galatians 3.28. Let me read that. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Third, Ruth portrayed the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31.10, an example for all women. Fourth, Ruth described God's sovereign and providential care of seemingly unimportant people in apparently insignificant times, which later proved to be monumentally crucial and accomplished in God's perfect will. Fifth, Ruth, along with some other unlikely women, you should read about these, very unlikely women, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, they all stand in the genealogy of the Messianic line. This is God working transcendently far above us. And finally, as we said, David's right and thus Christ's right to the throne of Israel is traced back to Judah as foretold in Genesis 49. So Yahweh directed the paths of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz to bless the whole world, first through King David and ultimately through David's future son, Jesus Christ. That's all amazing. Well, I have to ask you one more question before we close. What happens when you trust and obey God in honest faith and the temporal result is not a happy ending? Well, 
Maybe this is the most important point of the day. Trusting God means trusting God unconditionally. You learn enough about God to say, I'm not putting you on trial, God. I trust you unconditionally. In other words, we don't expect any temporal outcome. We simply trust God, knows what he's doing, and that good will come of it ultimately because he's a good God. Well, Ruth and, and Naomi were, were rewarded temporarily, but I want to I look at a few other people very quickly. How about the first apostles after the resurrection of Jesus? How did they all fare? Well, we know what happened to Judas. He didn't get, get to see the risen Christ, and he killed himself. And then we have... Zebedee, James, son of Zebedee, who was executed by Herod around 44 AD. This is all the Bible gives us. But there are historical reports and legends about the others. We do know they all suffered for their faith. Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome at about 66 AD under Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. And that was at his request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the manner of his Lord Jesus And then we have the rest. Andrew, Thomas, Philip, Matthew, Bartholomew, James, Simon, Matthias. They're all to have said to have met an untimely death. John's the only one that supposedly died of old age. And he was exiled to Patmos. And there he's credited writing the book of Revelation. So what are we to make of all this? Well, what we're to say is, Oh, if all of us could have the kind of beautiful all-in faith that these men had. The kind of all-in faith that leads to obedience. And their rewards are eternal. Their rewards are eternal. That's what we have to keep in mind. God does promise that, and they are the best. So when life squeezes you, or when it's going great, what are we to think and to do? We are to thank the source of blessing in good times. And we're to trust the source of suffering in the tougher times. We know this God of the Bible to be good. We have to choose faith over fear. There's a beautiful hymn that I want to close with that we've all probably sung over the years. It has a refrain that stuck with me. The lyrics were written by a man named John Henry Samus, and he lived from 1846 to 1919. And here's the refrain. Trust and obey, for there's no other way be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey.